It is good. Okay. You got it. We'll go ahead and uh, put this baby here. And uh, you want to read Psalm 119, verse 1. Okay. All right. Obviously, a little bit behind here. That's all right. Aleph, that's right. We're at the beginning of the stack right now. There we go. Let's see. Aleph, which is ox head. Strong power leader. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep the statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. They have laid down precepts that they are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways are steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees, not utterly forsake me. Okay, uh, we'll get started here in a sec with prayer, but i got to announce that uh, the Bridges, this is their last class here for at least a few months um they're going off to north carolina and um uh i'm surprised to see him here because they're supposed to pick up paul who is very sick so we need to have him in prayer and uh my guess is you think he'll be in the hospital when he gets back is that what he's going to do no he's going to see his uh internist probably first okay he'll go to he the doctor to then. To okay and then from there we'll find out what's going to happen with him but he's real sick and then we've got graham over in scotland who was supposed to be discharged in a couple of days from the hospital after weeks and weeks of being in it but today he got really really sick and oh, he's no. yeah he's not doing so hot again oh, no. but we'll keep him in prayer and uh, of course, we've got all the other people we mentioned from time to time with right. chemo and with, you know, this. I just yes. want to let you know Carrie went home. Carrie yeah, went home too, so mm-hmm. that's good. Is yeah. she, uh, she's going to be. She's doing well. Okay. Daughter, daughter in law is still holding on to that baby. Okay. So. Good deal. All right. Well, let's uh, go to Lord in prayer here really quickly. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come here and to meet and share in your word and share with those who are online with us as well. And we ask that you bless each and every one of them. and you know there's a couple of prayer requests that are here and a couple that are also unstated at this point that we want to uh, have in our hearts and uh, to uh, just lift up to you and lord please do look after each one of the people that were mentioned and all the others that are are not mentioned and use according to your wisdom we would ask that you would just take care of these things and uh, we ask that you bless this time here as we meet together and uh, just help us to stick close to your word and to cherish it and to uh, not stray from it and lord we just love you you sure are good to us you're so wonderful to us thank you for the wonderful weather you've been giving us and uh, if you see it fit to give us some rain we would really like that as well but thine will be done and in all things we'll give you praise and glory because you are infinitely worthy of it and we'll do it in jesus name amen Amen. all right oh hello how you guys doing there um I've been thinking about you guys all day long. I don't know why. Just out mowing this morning, and I'm Never just coming. well. I don't know. Just I was I about once every uh, two months, maybe I go behind the mall and I, I mow behind the mall, which is a marsh, and it yeah. and I'm just out there. It takes me like three hours, and I'm just done when I'm done with it. And I, I don't know. The whole time I'm just thinking about the Colvins. I you know just whatever. Anyway, um, yeah. Uh, let's see here. So. Um, uh, we're in Romans 4, verse 18, and uh, as we're turning to that, I'm going to announce we have to close early today. We're, I, it's going to be about 6, 6, 10, maybe we're going to have to close a little bit early, and I apologize for that, people online, but that's okay, um, uh, just, just so you know that we need to do that, and um, if the bridges get up for the people there in here and leave, just make sure we stop and say goodbye because we won't see them again until, you're going to be up there at least five months, right? Five months. Okay, so we, you'll be missed, but we know that you may have to go. Yeah. No place like this. No place like Sarasota. That's a fact. Okay, so we are in. Here, Charlie. Oh, you mean the church? <laughs> Woohoo! I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> okay, verse four eighteen. Let me see. Is that a uh, chapter? Or, I mean, the beginning a, of a paragraph. It is a beginning of a paragraph. So there you go. Against all hope, Abraham. In hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him so shall your offspring be okay once again he cites scripture paul never gets very far away from it in, in any of his books he's always citing the word and uh there he goes uh 418 hope is defined as a want or expectation of something 
particularly when the thing seems likely or possible, right? It's something that you want. It's something you are looking forward to. And uh, when the thing, thing seems likely or possible, it gets a little stronger as a hope. Now, obviously, there is a much, much better, um, uh, is it no, faith. I'm thinking of faith in uh, Hebrews uh, 11, <laughs> 1, but we won't worry about that. Hope is a little bit different. Anyway, hi, Pat. How are you there? Yeah. So uh, let's see, you're, we're just getting started right now, so you're right on time. Let's see here. Contrary to this premise of hope, Abraham in hope believed. In other words, Abraham placed his hope in something that was not likely and which was seemingly impossible. His wife was beyond the age of bearing, and yet he accepted God at his word. This is specifically referred to in Genesis 15, verse 5, which is one verse before the great proclamation of faith. Uh, let me take you there really quickly, and uh, Genesis 15, verse 5 says, uh, let's see here, I'm sorry, I should have had that marked already, but I didn't, and that's because Burke and I have been sitting in here talking about stuff all for the past hour. Let's see here, then he brought him, uh, <coughs> brought him outside, meaning the Lord brought Abraham outside, and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Something that he was told would happen, which was beyond any possible chance. His wife is ancient. He's ancient. They've never had children. And so the chance of them having any children at all is beyond hope. And yet beyond hope, Abraham believed. And then verse 6, you've got to read that. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So the Lord counted him righteous, believing and having faith in that which was unbelievable. And, you know, that's... Before I go on, that's what we do all the time when we talk to people about Jesus. They say, well, I, I can't believe somebody popped out of the grave. I just don't believe that. If they're dead, they're dead. And yet we will believe that Elon Musk or one of these people can take a brain out of a person and put in another person and revive that dead tissue, which is something that, you know, Frankenstein's been trying to do for, you know, whenever that was written. Marie Shelley wrote that years ago, and, and uh, we look at it as a scientific oddity you know, a, a fantasy, but it's not something that we really think of as reality. But we believe that Elon Musk can do it now, but we won't believe that God can do it with his own son 2,000 years ago. But for those who do believe, that's all it takes. That's all it takes in order to be saved is that premise. Hello, how are you? So um, the faith of Abraham was not misdirected faith, even though the promise was otherwise unlikely, and I would say unlikely at best. The reason is that it is God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, quoting Paul there. If the one speaking to Abraham is truly the creator, and he is, then the word spoken from him, even if it seems impossible to us, is actually more than probable. And we can take that right to Matthew 19, verse 26, which says, Matthew 19, verse 26 says, um, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, okay? Now, that doesn't mean, and Hebrews repeats the sentiment, that does not mean that something which is logically impossible can be done by God. God will never violate something that is logical, and he will never violate his own standards. In other words, it is impossible. It is impossible for God to be evil. So not all things are impossible for God. When he says that, that's from a human perspective. It's something that is impossible for humans to grasp or to understand. God can still make it happen. But some things are impossible for God. It's impossible in uh, Hebrews. It says um, it is impossible for those once, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, if it's impossible, it's impossible. God is not going to override that. But um, having said that, there are things that are logically impossible. God cannot make a two a three. A three will always be a three, and if you make take one away, then you have two. It's logically impossible, and God would not violate what what is logical. So there are certain things that are impossible with God. That is what not what Jesus is speaking. Would not, what he would not violate his own. That's right. He would not violate his own structure of what he has done. Now he may override it, like um, uh, going through the Red Sea. The wind. Uh, uh, it says, and it tells how he did it. He says he blew an east wind all night long, and the land was dried up, and like I said, I use the example all the time when people say, well, I just don't believe that. Come out to my house on a cold front, any cold front, and you can literally walk all the way across Sarasota Bay and it, you'll be dry, except where they dig, dug the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, intercoastal waterway years ago. 
And normally the bay is, you know, five, six feet deep and you get one cold front and it pushes all night long and you wake up in the morning and you could literally walk through. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. Never get above your knees ever. And usually you'll be even less than that. There's no water in the bay at all. It pushes it all out. And it, it, so it, it, just think if it was a very strong east wind and it, the conditions are right, where he had them go over there, no problem. Okay. He's overriding what is normal. And, uh, you know, then you have, of course, what we would consider the miraculous with Jesus coming out of the grave. But if you think about it, if you think about it from God's perspective, there's nothing miraculous about it. It had to happen because the wages of sin is death and he didn't sin. He had to come out of the grave. So God is not even overriding anything. He's just simply following what is absolutely necessary according to his standards. And anyway, and, and, and is logical. That's right, he has given us the word. The word tells us what the man who does these things, Leviticus 18 verse five, will live by them. Jesus did them, he will live by them. It is absolutely, and that's where we are inserted into Jesus because we are in Christ when we move from Adam to Christ. The man who does these things will live by them. If we are in Christ, we are counted as having done those things. We cannot stay in the grave. It is impossible. If God does not resurrect us unto eternal life, then he has failed in what he promised us. If we are in Christ and we have truly believed, Romans 10, 9 and 10, it's done. It is impossible that death can hold you. Impossible. That doesn't mean that you're not going to die. We're all going to die unless the Lord comes first. But there is a time when he will resurrect all of his people. It is not possible. He's not overriding himself. He's doing what he has said he would do. Beyond hope, Abraham believed, okay? Um, so, uh, life application. Real real quick verse there. Um, when reading the Bible, you are reading the very word of God to you. <clears throat> its promises are guaranteed. And what it states is absolute truth. But be careful to rightly apply it and keep its words in proper context. Real problem there when we don't do that. You see that in churches all the time. Take something out of context and all of a sudden you've got people doing things which are not according to what the Bible teaches, even though they say, well, it says right here. Yes, but that's not the context. Who is that person speaking to? Under what dispensation is he writing it, etc.? Take it out of context. You can make anything say anything, right? Um, one cannot claim promises to which they are not entitled. Through right interpretation, we will be built up in our faith and not disappointed when misdirected hopes are dashed. As I say a million times, because it's the most common verse in the Bible, probably, that's taken out of context by Christians. I'm not talking about people that say, judge not lest you be judged, and they're not even Christians, and they're trying to get you to shut up. What? That's not what I'm talking about. The, the one that most Christians take out of context, and there are a lot of them, but this is probably the most common one. I'm talking about rapture-believing Christians, is... Um, uh, no man knows the day or the hour. It has nothing to do with the rapture. Absolutely nothing to do with the rapture. He was speaking to Israel under the law. I know there's a guy in Hawaii that he's a great prophecy teacher, and he says, well, I disagree, and he gives his logic, and it is wrong. He's absolutely wrong. When you take that verse that is being spoken to Israel out of the context, and you say, well, of course, that's speaking to us, then everything else in the surrounding text has to be speaking to us as well, and none of it is. Further, when he says that uh, no man knows the day and the hour, okay, and you apply that to the rapture, then that completely makes Paul a liar. When was the book of 1 Corinthians written? Was it written before the time of uh, Christ's resurrection or was it written after? How, how long after? Like 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, behold, I show you a something that Jesus already told you about, right? No, he says, I show you a mystery. It is the first time that this has ever been explained to anybody ever flowing from the pen of Paul. Behold, I show you a mystery. And he, then he explains what the rapture is. And he says, this is going to happen at this time. Matthew 24 is speaking to the Jews about something that pertains to them only, not to the church. Anyway, as I said, and I'm not trying to belittle anybody else. I'm just simply saying context is king when you interpret the Bible. If you take something out of context, you can make anything say anything. And it is not correct. Okay, anyway, and if you want to go through that section of Matthew sometime, we can do it right now if somebody says, I want to do it, but there's no point. We're in Romans. I will go through it with you, though. Email me, and I'll tell you all the information when it says the uh, he'll blow a great trumpet. It's not speaking about the rapture. It's referring to something in Isaiah, I think it's 22 or 26, where uh, it's the only other time that the uh, shofar gadolah is described in the entire Bible is in Isaiah, and then he's referring to that instance. It's not the church. Anyway, let's go on. Um, Verse 419. Without weakening in his faith, 
he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and Sarah's womb was also dead. Okay, this is kind of the same, but it's just termed a little differently. And not being weak in his faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. A little different there. He said as good as dead, uh, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Okay? Abraham's faith remained strong despite the odds against him. Okay? He was given a promise that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky at a time when it seemed a little bit more than improbable. However, misunderstanding also comes into our thinking at this time concerning the wording of this particular verse. The New King James Version here states, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. This is misleading concerning the issue. Here's another version for comparison. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's the King James Version. The issue isn't concerning the deadness of Abraham's body, but the considering of Abraham's body dead because of the deadness of Sarah's womb. There is a big difference there. There is nothing to suggest and everything to refute the thought of Abraham's body being dead. Why? <laughs> well, I'm talking about Ishmael. Ishmael. And then afterward, he had Keturah as a wife, right? And he had how many kids after that? Yeah, that's right. He had more than that. I think there were, uh, well, anyway, yeah, he had at least three. So anyway, there's nothing to consider the way that the New King James Version termed this. And that's why when I say you get stuck on a single ver translation of the Bible, you are making a fundamental error in theology because there are, there are fallible men which are translating this word and they are struggling with the text and it's a big, big volume of text. If you try to translate one book of the Bible in your life, you'd be doing very well, I think. That's why when you have a translating committee, you've got 50 or 60 guys and you say, you guys are gonna do Genesis one through 18 and then you're going to do and they break it down into sections and then they have an overall editor and they've got people that check for spelling typos and then was this supposed to be italicized was it not there it is a huge it is a science to translate a bible and a body of people of 50 or 60 men getting together praying every day and doing their very best is still a body of 50 or 60 fallible people okay there are always going to be misinterpretations there are going to be things that they didn't check with this translating group about this verse, which it's tied to, and all of a sudden you've got a conflict between the two. Not to slam any translation, because translators do their best. They do their very best. But there's always going to be something that they miss. God's word is way above people, way above it. Um, anyway, so um, let me read that again. The issue is not concerning the deadness of Abraham's body, but the considering of Abraham's body dead because of the deadness of Sarah's womb. And as I said, there's nothing to suggest and everything to refute the thought of Abraham's body being dead. He was only about 100 years old, and he would father many children before his death at 175. However, at this point in his life, Sarah, his only wife, had no children. The considerations of Abraham being a father is tied to Sarah. This is the reason why later in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah gave Abraham her maidservant Hagar to bear a child, as she noted the child Ishmael, okay? The same consideration is to be seen in Hebrews 11, verse 12. I don't even know why I chose that verse. Why did I do that? Um, oh yeah, but what do I say? I, I will, no, I'm sorry, I'm in 2 Corinthians. It helps to be in the right book there, Hebrews 11. <laughs> I just got to a chapter 11, and I said, that'll do it. Um, Therefore, from one man okay. and him, as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude. There you go. Therefore, from, uh, and they chopped something off on you. No, innumerable as sand, which is by the There you go, sand by the seashore. Okay, so there you go. And so it wasn't had nothing to do with Abraham. It had to do with Sarah's dead womb, okay? In this verse, as in Romans 4, 19... The reckoning that Abraham's childbearing was as good as dead is tied to Sarah, right to her, not to anybody else. It shows us the moral uprightness of Abraham, who was faithful to his beloved wife despite her inability to bear. Now, I've got a friend that uh, is having problems with that part of her body right now, and her husband wants nothing to do with her anymore. He's out playing what? around. Yeah. 
So it shows you Abraham, he's got a wife for, and I think, well, I don't want to get into the timing, but she was probably very young when they got married and he'd been with her all that time. And yet he stayed with her and he was faithful to her despite her not being able to have children. So um, yeah, it's terrible. This is the world we live in. Okay, it shows his moral uprightness. This is the strength of Abraham's faith that God made a promise and that it would in fact come about. It was Sarah, not Abraham, who proposed that Abraham go into Hagar and thus because of her words, he agreed. It wasn't Abraham, Sarah's the one that did it, okay? Until she made the proposal, the belief was that his faithfulness to Sarah would be rewarded. That's implied in the text. And in a way it was, both through the beginning of Ishmael, though Hagar and uh, through Hagar, and then later beginning Isaac through Sarah. Abraham walked in faith and was rewarded for his faith by God. It's a lesson for all of us. Every one of us can take that and apply it directly to ourselves. The Bible says something. It says something incredible, right? And everybody here knows somebody that is facing some type of life-ending situation. We all do. Or if we don't now, we did at some point in our life and we will again. That's how it goes. And we say, oh, it just, it, it, it hurts to face those type of things. It's debilitating, not just for the person, but for all the people that are involved with them. And yet the Bible says that this is something that is going to happen. So where do we put our faith at that time? Do we say, why is God so mad at me? Why did he allow this in my life? Or do we say, I'm going to trust that this is what the Lord is doing for a reason. And I keep bringing up Bill Bright. Bill Bright, I was talking to the Bridges about him a while ago, and they actually met him. Is it Bill Bright? You know, he got this, what was it, pulmonary? Uh, what was it called? Fibrosis. Fibrosis. He's dying, right? And it's a miserable death. And yet all the way to the very end of his days, he was there speaking about the Lord, praising the Lord and telling people to cling to the Lord, right? He didn't whine about why is this happening to me? He probably had doubts in his mind all the time. I wish this wasn't happening. And you know, what's it going to be like tomorrow? And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about his steadfast faith. Johnny Erickson Tata is another perfect example of this. I was 17, I think. Jumped into the water, broke her neck, and she's been in the wheelchair ever since then. Four hours a day it takes for her just to get ready for the day. Four hours her husband has to spend with her getting her ready. Four hours. It takes us, what, 30 seconds if we're in a rush? Okay, she gets bed sores. They're painful. She suffers with these things all of her life, and yet her faith remains strong all the time. Whenever you hear her speak, it is always glorifying of the Lord. Why is this happening to poor old me? Because the Lord has a reason for it. And we get the examples right from the Bible, right? David, God, I think I brought him up a week ago. He was cold until the day he died. He could not get warm. Terrible death. Terrible death. I think it's something to do with your um, thyroid, isn't it? And you, you can never get cold, that warm. You can put on blankets. You can go exercise. Nothing will help it. Your fingers always hurt. But the Lord had a reason for it. And David, you know, he stayed faithful to the Lord right to the end. So anyway, don't want to belabor that too much, but that is what we need as human beings to apply to our life is to say, Abraham was faithful and what, 35, 4,000 years later, he is still being rewarded. 4,000 years later in our Bible studies and in our sermons and as we read the Bible, what a man of faith because of the life he lived. And you get into the book of uh, Hebrews, the Hall of Fame of Faith, and here are all these people, regular people, some great people, but every one of them is rewarded for one thing, one thing. Faith. That's the only thing that God is concerned about. He's not concerned about how rich you are, how much you gave to the church, or how much you, you know, whatever. He's not concerned about any of those things. He's concerned about your faith. And if you apply that, you're giving to the church, or you apply that to your ministry downtown, that faith to that, then the Lord will reward you for it. Otherwise, it's just show. It's just show. Okay. Um, so it was Sarah who proposed that. Uh, to God who called the universe into existence and who raised Lazarus from the womb, the tomb, excuse me, the miracle of life through Sarah's dead womb was his way of showing us that he has all things under control. He can bring to life her womb. He can bring to life him from the tomb. I made a little poem there and I, I blew it. But anyway, um, he is capable of doing all of these things for us. No doubt about it. He is the God that will keep his promises. So um, life application with God, nothing is impossible. When we see difficulties, God sees opportunity for his glory to shine forth all the more brightly. 
Let us stand fast and firm on the surety that if God has made a promise in his word, it will certainly come about. Read the book of Revelation, especially the last couple pages of it when you're in a bad mood and say that that is coming. It is coming. It is going to happen and nothing is going to thwart it. 1 Corinthians 15 is a good section to read. It's about, you know, the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, good section to read. It's about the rapture. When you're down, read those. And when you're just in a bad mood, read the 42nd Psalm. That is that is what I go to when I'm just in a really bad mood. Yes. I told you what you said about Abraham, but did you don't you know that he got into trouble? Everybody knows he got into trouble when he took Sarah down there and the yeah. king wanted her and everything, but Everybody says he got into trouble. You watch my sermons and I don't think he got into trouble at all. You don't think no. so? No. Anyway, go ahead. It's the same thing. It's the same thing with um, Isaac because he did the same thing oh, with yes. Abimelech, right? Yeah. Do you know when he he said about his wife um, Isaac was Re- Rebecca, right? You know what he said about her, Ahoti, my sister, right? Yeah. Everybody slams him for that. Do you know what they call each other in Israel when they're married to each other, husband and wife, Ahoti, my sister. Yeah, Song of Solomon, Ahotu. It's used, I think, eight times in the Old Testament. Seven of them are referring to people that are married, okay? I could be wrong on the numbers, but it is all that. So people like to insert things into those accounts to find fault in these people, and I don't think there's any fault to be found. You watch my sermons on Isaac and Abraham, and I don't think once I find fault in any of them. They were people of faith, and the Lord reward them all the way through. The Arabs come from that Ishmael's line. Yes, they do. So... And it served God's plans, right? I know it did. But yeah, I, I know it sounds like a bad thing. Watch the sermons. Go back and watch the Abraham and Isaac sermons, and I think you'll say, oh, I, I look at this differently now. I tried to never find fault in any of the patriarchs because the Bible doesn't. You can imply it back there, but you can also imply that he didn't. I like to take the other side. God is showing us these things for a reason. Well, 11th of Hebrews and well, you know, you know the story of uh, uh, what's his name, um, Lot and his two daughters, and everybody, everybody I've ever read, every commentary I've ever read on that account, every one of them has said how shameful it was, and yet not one of them has ever focused on why the Lord put that story in there. It's because both of those daughters have sons that lead to Jesus, both of them. That is why that story in there. He's it's irrelevant what happened in that cave, other than the fact that it points to Jesus. Look at the good. Don't look at the bad. That's my thought. How does this point to Jesus? And it will always come out good in the end. Okay, that's my. That's just me. I like to look at the positive in these people because we're all just like them. We're fallible people. We make mistakes. But if we can look for the good in what they did, maybe the Lord's looking for the good in what we've done too. If not, I hate to think of looking at my life because, wow, what a disaster. What a ba- poor Hedico. Um, okay, 420. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith by giving glory to God. All right, that's almost identical here. Okay, Abraham has been given as the prime example of fortitude and faith. The, in the whole Bible, he is the prime example. Now, actually, I think Moses is mentioned more than Abraham in Hebrews 11, but it might be Abraham. It's one of the two is mentioned the most. Anyway, but he is he's the father of faith. You know, the, when the Jews talk to Jesus about Abraham, they that's our father, we're sons of Abraham, right? He is the man. He's the guy of faith. He remained unwavering in his convictions concerning the promise of God. Unfortunately, he is too often, ah, here it goes, maligned against this very premise when it comes to the account with Hagar. (laughs) I wish I had read this earlier. uh, The man of faith is said to have weakened at that time, but this is not at all the case. Paul states very clearly here that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. So Paul, he just rebuked you, not me. Okay, what occurred with Hagar was simply a man not having all the information that God has. Because of this, his actions with Hagar were done in faith, not apart from them. Okay, it was Sarah who made the proposition and Abraham acted upon it, possibly assuming that this was the divine plan God spoke of. In the end, he's sitting there in his tent and she comes in and says, I want you to do this thing. He goes, oh, then she's the one that brought it up She's the problem. He knows he's not the problem. And so she's made the... So Abraham is exonerated in this completely in my eyes and at least in what Paul says here. That's how I see it. And that was long before I did this commentary. I did the Genesis sermon. So anyway, um, 
uh, let's see here, it was uh, Sarah possibly assuming this was the divine plan. In the end, all came about exactly as God intended. Ishmael was born to meet God's plans, and later Sarah conceived Isaac, thus bringing glory to God. Abraham's walk was continuously one of undivided faith. The Greek word translated as waver here indicates a mental struggle concerning the issue. In Abraham, there was no such turmoil. God spoke, and he believed unwaveringly. Abraham learned early and held fast to the truth that if one looks at the circumstances around them, they will falter. If you look at your circumstances around you at whatever given time, you are going to falter. There's no doubt about it. If you, what does it say in Hebrews 12 too? Come on, I say it. Looking in. Yes, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't look at the world around you, all right? If you fix your eyes on the Lord, there is only surety of purpose and resoluteness and de- determination. He's already, he's at the end. We're not at the end, he is. But when we look at where he's at and we say, he's promised that I'm going to be there too, then all of this stuff that happens along the way must have a good purpose, even if it seems like it's bad in the process. Okay, for this very reason, the Bible elsewhere, here it is, implores us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And again, Hebrews 3, 1 says, let us fix our thoughts on Jesus. When we look unto him, there will be no time for mental distractions which cause us to falter. If we look to Jesus, and you know, bad day, oh, things are going really horribly, and you say, I'm just going to keep my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to keep focusing on him. All of the bad day is going to go away. I mean, it's going to go away. It may not go away physically, but it is going to go away in relation to what you're facing. It will, because that's what he wants of us. He wants us to continue to focus on him. He's the Lord. He created me. He placed me here. He's got me in this position for a reason. And in the end, if you do that, invariably, like when we're out in the mission work and we're grumbling about nothing going on, and we say, well, you know, we have a prayer with somebody, and Lord, you know, send somebody our way, something good inevitably happens, right? Inevitably. And we go away feeling much better at the end of the day than we did arriving there. That just, you know, sometimes you get yourself into a pity party and you forget to look to the Lord. But when you look to the Lord, it's going to go away. Um, But there is an important caveat which must be considered concerning our faith. Misapplied promises, and this this is what I was speaking of earlier, misapplied promises can only lead to unsatisfactory results. I'm not going to read the rest of my comment yet, and I'll tell you, I saw on Facebook, as I see a hundred times a day, somebody posted that they were miserable, they were so sick, and people say, I'm claiming healing for you in Jesus' name, right down there. And I just, I, you know what, my comment usually, if I if I even comment at all, it's usually afterward, I'm praying for you, but not claiming for you. You know, I'll say something, kind of hoping somebody will read it and say, you know, this is not appropriate. It is not your right to claim anything in Jesus' name as far as healing is concerned. The Bible doesn't say that ever. It's not something that we can take and snap our fingers and say, you are going to be healed in Jesus' name. We can pray about it. We can ask for it. But I will give some examples in case somebody's online and they haven't heard these before because the people in the church have, is that Paul left um, uh, what's his name um, in Miletus? Um, what was his name? He Timothy. left. No, not Timothy. He left. Um, uh, Epa- no, Epaphras almost died for the sake of the gospel. Epaphroditus. Okay, and Paul wasn't able to heal him. He had to send him back to the people. He left. Um, uh, uh, Tychicus. Tychicus sick go. in Miletus. Yeah. He couldn't heal him. He left him there, and he was sick. And then a third one. He said to Timothy, "Drink a little bit of." wine for your constant stomach problems. He didn't say, I claim healing in Jesus' name, okay? And writing a letter to Timothy is no different than making a post on Facebook. He didn't do it, and you shouldn't do it either. It is it is presumptuous, and it is sinful. And that's what it is when you claim things in Jesus' name that you are not entitled to. You have to take the Bible as a yeah. whole. I don't even get the logic behind that. I, I, I don't either. There is no logic behind it. it. It makes you look super holy. It makes other people look like they can come to you with their problems when they can't. And like I say, it is presumptuous and it is sinful. You never claim anything that is not authorized in this word in Jesus' name. Because if you do it, you are going to bring a bad name upon the Lord. I'll give an example. I'm not going to say who it is, but somebody that a couple of my friends and I used to go do something together. And one of them, 
a person used to come with us and we would do this thing and he would often claim healing over people and the next week we'd go and we'd see the same people and they weren't healed and how do you think that they felt when you show up the next week and they're not healed when he was standing there claiming healing over them and how embarrassed we were when that happened this is the kind of thing you cannot do without having serious repercussions weakening somebody else's faith and anyway, context. That's that's what I'm getting at right here. You have to keep the Bible in context. Isn't that like from the charismatic church? Yes, it is. It's the charismatic churches do that, and they do it all the time. I've been in charismatic churches where the pastor does it right from the pulpit, right? And he's also stood there at least 30 times during one hour. He said, I'm getting word from the Lord. Oh and he'd gosh. say, he, we need somebody in the church. And then he'd say something like, the windows need to be washed out back. And the Lord what? is telling me that you need to do this. And imagine the penalty that person is going to pay when he stands before the Lord. And the Lord said, I never said one word to you outside of this book. Mm-hmm. Not one. You have been given this book. It says that this book is all we have. It, right in the book, it tells us. You know, uh, Let me read it to you if you don't believe me. Hang on a second. This is what we have. This is Hebrews. It says, I'm God... God, right? That's who we're talking about. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, to whom he is appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. We don't have prophets anymore. We have the word of Jesus as recorded by the apostles, and it is done. Amen at the end of Revelation 22, 21. It's done. This is our word for God. If anybody disagrees with that, I feel bad for you. I feel bad for you that you are adding to the word of God and you are trying to get something that you are not entitled to. This is it. This, what more, my question to you is, what more do we need than this? What more do we need than what we have been given? Absolutely nothing. He has given us every sure promise that we have. And I, I know I harp on this a lot, but the word has to be the word. If it's not, then we'll do what the Methodists do, and I put on prophecy updates almost every week now, is they go to the Book of Discipline and they say, well, we're going to amend it, and we're going to allow this perversion, and we're going to allow this perversion, because it is an amendable document. This is not, it cannot be amended. It can be abused by people. The New World Translation of Job's Witnesses has changed it, but it is not God's word when you do that. God's word will never be changed. It is not an amendable document. So, um, that's the caveat there. It is highly fashionable to take single verses out of context and to make faith-based claims on them. It's both unreasonable and it is harmful. When quoting scripture to build up faith, it must be taken in context and in the manner it was intended by God. Because, you know, I, I, we have people do that even in regular churches. They misunderstand the context and they say, well, the Lord says, and they're taking something from the Old Testament and they're applying it to somebody in the church and you can't do that. Okay, there are verses that are uplifting in the Old Testament. Don't get me wrong. Jeremiah 31, 31, I think is one of them, or 29. Anyway, you know the ones from Jeremiah, they're uplifting. And yeah, I have plans for you to build you and make you prosper and all that. They're uplifting, but that is not written to us. Okay, and if you look at the context around it, he's saying you're in Babylon. You're going to stay in Babylon under punishment until I bring you back. Is that what you want is to live in a foreign land under punishment until the Lord prospers you and brings you back? No. That's what, no, we want to be here in Sarasota, Florida, enjoying ourselves and, uh, you know, doing all the fun things that you get to do, going out to the beach and surfing and oh, I haven't surfed in years, man. I used every time I'd hear the waves breaking, I'd be out there and I haven't gone in years. Oh, I'm so pathetic. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's see here. This is both, uh, uh, when quoting scripture, I said that, okay. Otherwise it is no promise at all. If you take something out of context and you tell it to somebody, it is not a promise. Okay, handle the word with care, especially when looking to its promises or when telling other people about its promises. Like I say, we are in the New Testament. We are a Gentile-led church age group of people. Where do we go to get our doctrine for that? We go to Paul. That's right. Anywhere else, you can say this is probably not speaking to me. Now, I will say this, is that when you read the Psalms, even if they're speaking of something else, the Psalms are given as a body of literature to build us up. When you read the Psalms, even if it's speaking about David living in a tent, you can get edification out of it. Okay, that is what they are intended to do, is to build you up and to cause you to get out of the rut you're in and to praise the Lord. Or if it's a Psalm of imprecation, maybe you'll learn about how to uh, imprecate somebody else, right? Because there are more Psalms of imprecation than there are of Psalms of, uh, you know, uh, praise and etc. Imprecation means to curse. 
And mo- there are more psalms of cursing. Lord, break their teeth in their mouth and punish the evildoers. And I got to tell you what, when I think about what goes on in the world, then I do it from a religious perspective and from a moral perspective and from a political perspective. And I get really angry and I don't know what to do with it. All I do is I just go quote the Lord's words back to him. And it takes care of the problem because I don't have to be the one that says, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. He's already said it. I'm just quoting it. This is what I'd like you to do. If you're going to have mercy on them, you will have mercy on them. If not, you know what to do with them because I get so frustrated at what's going on. The moral issues. Oh, oh. Yeah, look at the prophecy update every week. It just, it's, it's just an endless stream of bad news. But I want people to know what's going on in the world because if you don't know, you've got nothing to refer to. You've got nothing to understand the context, and that's why we, you know, we listen. Did anybody here go to see um, the Michael's on East last night? Uh, the the he's on um, the radio every morning, nine thirty a.m. Um, what? The captain. No, no, it's um. Uh, uh, I, I, I always hear him when I'm driving back. I flip through the channels, and he's always on. And he's a Catholic guy. Um, anyway, he was in Sarasota last night at Michael's on East. Very conservative, and uh, uh, I'll remember his name here in a minute. But uh, he he was here. And what he, is he? I mean, is he? He's just a radio talk guy. A radio That's all. Talk and uh, you know, guy. he's okay. nine thirty. You've got nine thirty and nine seventy are the conservative radio stations. Okay. He's on uh, Gall- Gallagher. Um, oh, Gallagher. Mike, Gallagher. Mike Gallagher. Thank you. Yes, he was in Sarasota at Michael's okay. on East last night, and he and it was really obsessed. what. It was a full house. Yeah, you said it was absolutely full, and he says it was a very productive thing. So I just want to know if anybody oh, here great. went. So, yeah, it was. he was very complimentary about it. Anyway, I didn't mean to bring that in, but, uh, okay, life application and what? We're going to get another verse today. Right. Who is being addressed in a letter or a book? That's the first thing you want to ask yourself. Who is being addressed? Okay, and most of the epistles will tell you. Right. If it says to the Corinthians, you know he's speaking to us because we are Gentiles in the Gentile-led church age. If it's James and he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, he ain't speaking to us, right? We're not the 12 tribes scattered abroad, unless you're a church of God up in uh, Indiana that believes that, but you're not. You are the Gentile-led church, okay? Or you have British Israelianism. They believe they're the 12 tribes. All these people all over the world get into these things and say we're the 12 tribes. But regardless, um, uh, you want to ask who's being addressed? What are the circumstances of what is being said? What is the time? What is the place? What is the person? Is the verse speaking directly to you, or are you merely being allowed the privilege of saying God's promise to someone else for learning, but not self-application? Knowing and applying these rules and many other rules of interpretation will keep one from being disillusioned by promises which were never intended to be used in your own personal manner. Okay, if you don't understand context, what you can do is get a book on hermeneutics. They're usually not very big. You know, you can get some that are volumes, but you get just a nice short book on hermeneutics. And I probably have one in back. And if not, I have one at home and I'll bring it in if somebody wants to read it. And it'll tell you how to properly apply the Bible when you study it. And it's one of the I go through these things all the time. I just say them off the top of my head. But when you talk about or when you read the book and you think about it, in a package where somebody's taken all of these things and say this is proper hermeneutics, but you got to be careful because you're going to get people that say, well, hermeneutics is charismatic teaching, and they'll write a book from that perspective. You have to get one that is sound and that is reasonable. But you get yourself a book on hermeneutics, and it will tell you. And even if you get a bad one, as I said last week, if you read a book and you go with it with the understanding that it may not be correct, you always learn, even if something is incorrect. Why is it incorrect? And now you can apply that incorrect. I'm going to avoid that in the future. So it's good to learn negatives and it's good to learn positives. But if I have one, you remind me, send me an email and remind me. And if I have one, I'll bring in. You can read. They're usually short. They're very good. And uh, uh, the old joke is, uh, who is hermeneutics? Well, he's the plumber up in the popka. Okay. Yeah. Hermeneutics. Okay. Anyway, um, 421. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's it? Well, they cut that one short. And being fully convinced that what he promised, he was also able to perform, which probably carries on to the next verse with yours. This is why it was called, it was credited him as righteousness. Okay, so they just cut that off completely in yours. What is that, the uh, NIV? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, they cut that off completely. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. That's why, once again, that's why it's good to read different Bibles, especially in a Bible study. If you've got four versions... And a third version now doesn't match either of ours, then speak up. 
because we can, why is that missing? Was it because of the Alexandrian text or the Byzantine text, or was it because it was a faulty translation? You don't know unless you check different. Um, uh, and you know, here's something that you might not even care about, but I was reading the, I read the NAS at night, okay, which is the NASB before it was, uh, oh, he's got a call. It was the NAS, NASB before it was the NASB. In other words, it's the old English, the, thou, and whatever. And uh, when they got to the New Testament, they had red letter Jesus, right? Everything Jesus said is in red letter. And I'm reading it, and I was probably on my second time through it, and I said, that's not highlighted. They forgot to highlight one of Jesus' sentences in red. It was in black. And so you want to circle that because, you know, even with something as simple as Jesus' words being in red, they missed it. So, yeah, I mean, it just happens. People are fallible. You've heard of the Wicked Bible. Has everybody heard of the Wicked Bible? No. no. no it's one of the rarest Bibles in the world. There's only a couple copies of it. It's a 16, it might be the 1611 King James. But anyway, a certain printer in England they made a mistake. I don't know if it was intentional or if it was purposeful. Maybe the guy that was doing the typesetting left it off on purpose. We don't know. But instead of saying, thou shalt not commit adultery, <laughs> yes, it's what you think. Thou shalt commit adultery. Oh and God. they were fined a oh. huge, huge amount by the uh, British government because of that. Wow. So they had to pay in silver, and uh, it was a costly lesson. But it's a very expensive Bible to buy now because it's very rare. And look at here. Wait, wait, wait. I know that this isn't really Bible, Bible, but it's, let, let me type this in. And, um, uh, Are you doing it on eBay? No, no. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, you, you can still buy one, I believe. Um, you, you can, there's a place out in Arizona that has many, many old Bibles. You can and, Google um, it and get it. Uh, well, that's what, what I, would you well, want yeah. It for? Um, what's that? What would you want it for? Oh, you know, people collect Bibles. That's yes. all. People collect Bibles. And, it, you know, they, it, what has value to you? Some people collect Bibles. Some People collect shells. Doesn't matter. Anyway, the Wicked Bible, I'm going to read it to you. The Wicked Bible, sometimes called the Adulterous Bible or the Sinner's Bible, is the Bible published in 1631. So it was a little after 1611 by Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, the Royal Printers in London, Royal Printers nonetheless, wow. which was meant to be a reprint of the King James Version. Um, they were fine. Here it is. 300, equivalent to 45,051 pounds as of 2015. That's a huge amount of money for a Bible to be mistranslated, okay, and deprived of their printing license. Wow. So there you go. Wow. Yeah. So thou shalt commit Thou shalt commit adult. They, wow. they left off the word not, and whether they did it intentionally or un unintentionally, whatever, it's a very rare Bible. And like I say, some people collect Bibles. I know people that collect Hedico for years had a giant, giant collection of Bibles. Man. And finally, I said, we got to get rid of these, and we gave them all away. But, I mean, she had the presidential uh, one with all the presidents in it, all the way up through, I think it was Ford. Beautiful, uh, beautiful. But, you know, it just, what do you collect? Now she collects dogs. What? Now she, <laughs> yeah, now she collects dogs. That's right. Um, okay, so 421. And, yeah, we have time. Okay, was that about Paul, doctor? No, okay. Uh, let's see here. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith. Oh, yeah, see, this is what I was going to say earlier. It was hope, not faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines what faith is. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is something which one possesses, a substance and evidence. Romans 4.21 takes this definition and describes it. Abraham was fully convinced that what he, God, had promised he was able to perform. Okay, He's just simply describing what that faith means. This is the substance of Abraham's hope, and it is the evidence of his faith right? Abraham's internal conviction that God was able to perform exactly what he was, uh, what he spoke was looked upon as an act of righteousness by God. This is the foundation of the biblical pattern for such a reckoning, and it will be broken down and explained in the next verses. And the Bible will never, never, never deviate from this premise. There's one thing we need to remember. Once that premise is laid out, it will never be deviated from again. It was given to Abraham, and it will always follow the same pattern. Abraham was saved by faith. We are saved by faith. Abraham's faith was this type of faith. This is what we have to do. As I said, people have faith in Islam. It's just misdirected faith. And misdirected faith is wasted faith. You go blow yourself up thinking you're going to go to heaven, you wasted your faith. Okay? That's the 
thing about the Bible. The Bible is consistent, that it has to be, one, properly directed, and two, it has to be consistent. And it will be, all the way through Scripture, it'll be consistent, okay? Um, and I, it is by grace, it is through faith that one is saved. <laughs> Jesus' words of John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever Believe. believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? It is something that is done. It is in God's mind. It is what he has ordained and that it will never deviate from that premise. He confirms that in John three sixteen, and it is worth remembering again and again and again. Because as I say, people will continuously come to you and they will try to say that faith means this, faith means this, or you have to add this into your faith in order to be saved. And you get all of these groups of people with their own little agendas and an agenda always turns out to be one word. Begins with B, it ends with bondage. Anybody? Bondage, that's right, very good. It's bondage. Anytime that you have somebody that has an agenda in their church to get people to stay and to have them feel like this is where it's at, it's going to be bondage. The Bible speaks of grace. It speaks of God's salvation by grace through faith and nothing else. Okay, that is it. You want to leave this church and go somewhere else, that is fine. You are still saved by grace and through faith. Don't let anybody tell you differently. Whatever you do, that is the premise, okay? This is the model, this is the standard, and this is the truth of the Word of God. We are to be fully convinced that what he promises he will also perform. I said that a few minutes ago, John. I'm sorry, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we believe that, we are saved. And the Bible says that is a promise. And it will come about. And that is what God is looking for when we're in our times of despondency, when we're in our times of worrying about our friends, right? We have Paul that has got something wrong with him right now. And we're praying for him. We're hoping that he will be okay. We've got Graham over in Scotland that we're praying for. We've got other people that have cancer that I bring up from time to time. And we hope that they will be okay and that they will be healed. But if they're not, we know where they are going. We know where they're going. And I remember the day, it's really the first person I ever saw die, I think. I mean, I just, I don't remember anybody in my life other than my grandparents, and I was gone at the time overseas, but I really, the first person I ever really experienced personal death with was the pastor that led Hedico to the Lord. And I loved the guy. His name was, um, um, why can't I remember Ross. this now? Hey, thank you. William Ross. We were talking about him a couple minutes ago. And um, uh, he was the nicest, kindest, sweetest guy. He was just such a wonderful guy. And he died on 7 November of 2004. And it was Sunday morning. We were all walking into church, and he had died that night. And I walked in, and I was literally crushed. And I thought, oh. And I remember when we had the funeral, and his casket was in the church. And I looked at it, and I kept thinking, what about all of his knowledge? What about all that knowledge that I'm not going to get now? And the, the friendship. And I just remember thinking these things. And now, all these years later, I've realized that, you know, he passed his knowledge on to people, and they had to do something with it. And that's what we're here to do, is we're here to continue to pass those things on until we come to a fullness of the manhood that Paul writes about in the book of Ephesians. And when we do, when we come to that point, then the Lord will take us and move us on, and he'll have somebody else to fill the shoes until he comes. But we have to keep occupying until he comes. And death is not the end. That's the good thing. All right. Um, where was I? Um, uh, oh, we're in 421. Okay. So, uh, yeah, he's done the work. We need to accept what he has done and the promises which accompany it. And that's all that we need to worry about. 422. We still have time. Burning up here. Yeah. Well, they're really short commentaries here. I don't know why. I, I just must have been pressed for time in the mornings when I typed these. Up. <laughs> I don't remember. Anyway, go ahead. Good thing you didn't. Out a few shall nots. Yeah, yeah, don't leave out any shall nots. Don't do that. This is why it is credited to him as righteousness. Okay, very simple. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And therefore, Paul sums up the thoughts of verses 9 through 22. It's a long section he's been writing about, which includes an interim therefore that must be considered in this thought. Because of everything that Paul has noted, clearly laying out his defense of righteousness apart from works, he cites Genesis 15, 6, which I already read you. It was accounted to him for righteousness, speaking about the Lord counting it to Abraham. The word translated here is telling us that God was counting Abraham righteous because of his belief. 
The difference between, and I said this a couple weeks ago, excuse me, I'm going to say it again, the difference between imputation and impartation was previously described, but I want to give it to you again. Imputation. I believe the gospel, and therefore I am counted as righteous. Okay, that's imputation. I believe the gospel. God has declared me righteous. I'm counted as righteous in his eyes. Impartation is I believe the gospel, and therefore I am righteous. Okay, we are not imparted Christ's righteousness. We will be. We are not yet. We are imputed his righteousness. Does anybody here wake up in the morning and say, I didn't sin once yesterday? Has anybody ever done that? I've never done that. Okay, never. There's not one day that I woke up and said, gee, yesterday was a perfect day for me. We are counted as righteous before God. We are not imparted Christ's righteousness yet. Okay, that's an important thing to uh, remember because this is the same thing with Abraham. Abraham believed God and righteousness was credited to his account. Even though he was still a fallible man, he knew that the seed of the woman promised at the fall of man would come. Even more, he believed that he would come through him. This is something that he knew. He would come through him despite his circumstances. His unwavering faith in the promise of God was all that was necessary to justify him. He was counted as righteous. Okay? It was a very simple declaration. It was a very simple thing he had to do. But it was difficult if he looked at it from a worldly perspective. Same thing with us. Very simple thing for us to do. And yet, as I said, I think it was last week or two weeks ago in the sermon, it's the hardest thing of all. Some people can never come to say, I need a savior, right? It, it, to them, it is so difficult. They say, well, I, I, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to make it work. And they, they go to every religion on the planet. They'll travel over to Thailand and they'll go to Buddhist temples and they'll say, I'm going to be righteous. Didn't work. They go up to the top of the mountains in Tibet and they talk to some guy sitting there with a spinning wheel and they say, this will do it. And he still has this thing nagging inside of him. I'm going to be righteous, right? So he goes and sits under a Bodhi tree in Malaysia. And he says, I'm going to be righteous. And it doesn't work. And they will spend their whole life going from thing to thing to thing. That's why one day we have feng shui, and the next day we have yoga meditation. And the next day, there's always a new fad coming out because it never satisfies. But when somebody understands the grace of Jesus Christ, it's done. They say, I understand this, and I don't need all of those other things. Okay, that is why we need to keep reminding ourselves of this is because it fully satisfies the need of the human soul because it comes from the God who created us and who cannot lie. Okay, so um, life application, <laughs> burning it up, baby. Yes. Richard Dillon told his wife one evening, you know, in the morning you bring my breakfast up, knock on the door and leave it there. I'm going to pray and read my Bible and going to go one day without sinning. Oh, and she did. He did that for lunch, and she did that for the dinner. And about nine o'clock that night, before we went to bed, <gasps> I was supposed to visit Mrs. Smith today, and I didn't. So I didn't go with a day without sinning. I missed my appointment, and I told her I would be there. But he thought he was going to live a day without. It's sinning. not going to happen. There's <laughs> always something you leave undone, or there's always something you do. But he applied that when he was, you know. Just like you all ago, we think we can do it. We, we, can. we can't. No. There, there's always something that's going to keep us well, from being That's just the things we know. That's right. It's just the things <laughs> we know. Getting killed that day. Well, yep. you did that. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you were going to say something like the third time he knocked on the door, he said, what would you say? You know. Oh, gosh. Okay, life application. When evaluating passages in the Bible for Self-application, I'm going right back to what I said. Are we in 22 or 23? 22. 22, okay, I'm reading the wrong one. He got me off track there. It's your fault. Um, take time to read, read verses 9 through 23 today, okay? Just when you go home, read 9 through 23, and then store away this valuable treasure trove of information. If you have called on Jesus as Lord, then you are saved. Don't let anyone tell you that you're lacking something necessary to please God, because you're not. Let your works result from your salvation and not be an attempt to somehow merit your salvation. Now, seeing as how I said it, let's do it. 9 through 23, please. There we go. The words, it was credited to him, were, not, were written not for him alone. That's where it ends. No, no, no. Read 9 through 23. Oh. I said we might as well do it here. Here okay? we go. Okay, so we got 10 minutes. We do. We got plenty of time. Okay. Is this blessedness only... For the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? 
We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it rather he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had been had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value in the promise and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and there is no law, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you father of many nations, our father in the sight of God, whom he believed, the God who gives life then and calls things that are not as though they were. Again, all hope, against all hope, Abraham, just let you know, I'm reading over my oh, your notes. Stuff. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> like, that's okay. What? Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be, without weakening in his faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited credited to him as righteousness. There you go. Go to verse 23. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone. Okay. But. But, also, and then it goes on to the next verse. I, I know, it kind of stopped right in the middle yeah, of it. No. That's okay. And that was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul says this. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Jude's epistle says the same basic thing in verse 1-7, okay? The stories of the Old Testament aren't just written for us to read without careful consideration. Instead, they are written so that we have real examples of how God works in and through history, and they are to be used for our instruction and our learning. Okay? Having said this, it is important to understand that these are types and pictures, and so care needs to be used when evaluating them. That's what we do every Sunday. All right? In the case of Abraham, Paul explicitly says that what is written about how our righteousness was imputed to him wasn't for his sake alone. It was written for our sakes. He's giving us the model that shows us it's, you got type and anti-type, and so he's saying that Abraham is the type. All right. We have the assurance that the pattern set down in Scripture concerning imputation was one that we can apply directly to ourselves, and Paul will explain it in the next two verses. Okay. When evaluating passages in the Bible for self-application, context is king. Understanding proper context takes an immense amount of study and contemplation. So be careful not to run ahead and attempt to apply verses or passages to your own life without understanding their full intent and purpose. Unless a concept, type, or shadow is explicitly explained, use great care in how you apply it. Thank you. Yeah, just set it anywhere. Okay. See, I told you we we're going to have to close how early today. Oh, thank, thank you very much. much. <laughs> All right, now. How he says he loves us. How, yes, yeah, absolutely. You know what? Here's the deal. When we were closing last week, Rick came up to me, who's not here. I was planning on having pizza this week, right? And I said, well, we're going to have it because Rick is leaving and the bridges are leaving. And he came up and he handed me something. He said, put this in your pocket. And I said, what's that? And he says, well, it's for you. And I said, okay. Well, I said, well, we're going to have pizza next week with it. And he said, no, we're not because I won't be here. 
And I said, well, we're still going to have pizza next week. It's on you, not on me. And then all week long, the Bridges have thought they weren't going to be here. They called me on, I think, Tuesday morning. No, Sunday night. Sunday night. And they said, we're not going to be able to make it. And we're so sorry. We're not going to see you again. And then here they are. So it worked out okay. And then we have the Frohligers here as well. So praise the Lord. So we're going to go ahead and close with verse. Uh, what We did uh, verse 23. Okay, so we're on 23 next week. And... Um, we're going to go ahead and close in prayer. And oh, we're starting on 24 next week. Thank you. Okay. And um, uh, what we're going to do is because the doctor is here, even though he wasn't supposed to be here, we're going to let him close us in prayer tonight. Would you do that, sir? Okay. A loving, gracious heavenly Father. Just a joy that we can come in and study your word and see examples. You imputed consciousness back this baby up and y'all can say goodbye to the folks online let's see here there we go there we go okay everybody have a wonderful night we're gonna have some pizza we love you bye bye all right woo, woo, woo. Uh, see that worked out okay because i was saying oh that's too bad the uh the bridges aren't going to be here and uh they're here anyway, so it's pretty wonderful. Yeah, well, like I said, we got to thank Rick. Anybody that talks to Rick or gets an email from him, tell him thank you. I don't know. I don't know if he attends online or not, but here. Ooh. Somebody would whip this thing back really quick. Yes. Oh, guess what? Okay. Oh, okay. She's never here when we have pizza. <laughs> Nicole, every time we have pizza, oh. she's not here and she's not. And, uh, it's too funny. No, no. Every single time we have pizza, she doesn't come. Oh, my. Isn't that funny? I, she's, you know what? We'll see her next week or whenever and. We'll say, you know what you missed. We don't even you don't even need to 